All right, well, if you've got Bibles, uh, we're going to 1 Samuel chapter 9. Uh, I mentioned to Kevin before service, there should be a rule that if your pastor has had a baby in the previous week, you don't hold him responsible for anything that's said on a Sunday morning. So we actually, uh, Charlotte was... uh, was born uh, Thursday, uh, Thursday morning, 4.30, and everybody's been healthy and happy and actually been going really well. She's been easier than her older brother, Will, was, so we've actually gotten more sleep than we thought, but I still may run a course a few times, so bear with me. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9 is where we're going. Uh, We finally make it to the character of Saul this week, which has been sort of a long time coming. Uh, As we get introduced to Saul and we anticipate the other monarchs just around the corner, some of our favorite stories about David are just a few pages away. But there's going to be a lot that we'll learn over the next few weeks with this character of Saul. Uh, One of the things that we've been seeing is that there are these kind of mini stories that have been going on. Hannah's and Samuel's story. The story of the ark. Saul moves us into a new one of these. Uh, Where we left off in chapter 8, we saw that God agreed to give the people of Israel a king, even though it wasn't his plan or his timing for it. Samuel, at the end of chapter 8 had sent all of the elders back to their homes. We anticipate, as we turn the page to chapter 9, that all of a sudden this king would be named. But what we find is a little bit of a strange story about Saul out looking for his father's lost donkeys, and it begins to shape this new story that's coming, the story about this first king, Saul. The pace slows down a little bit as we get introduced to it. So uh, I'm going to read the whole chapter, a little bit long, and then next week I promise we'll pick the pace up. I think I'm going to do like three chapters next week. So we're going we're gonna to make hay here in just a few weeks. But right now we're going to do just chapter 9. So chapter nine, 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekoroth. The key to reading these names is you just read them really fast with confidence and everyone <laughs> thinks you know what you're saying. Son of Apipha and Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than all of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise and go look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalash. But they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim and they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. Then they came to the land of Zuf. Saul said to his servant, who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go... What can we bring this man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver. It's a pretty small amount. And I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go see the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. 
So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He, it is, who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys, they were lost three days ago, but do not set your mind on them, for they have already been found. And for whom is all this that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all of your father's house? Saul answered, I am a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel, and is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoke to me in this way? Verse 22. Then Samuel took Saul and his young men and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg, this is the prime piece of the animal, and what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, see, what was kept is set before you, eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day, and when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul at the roof, up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell your servant to pass on before us. And when he passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. If you keep reading into chapter 10, we get the actual anointing, this private anointing, the pouring of oil over Saul's head, where he becomes anointed as the first coming king of Israel. Uh, I said before that in the book of Samuel, what we've been doing is sort of looking at these little mini-series, these sets of stories that are building in the book. Hannah taught us about barrenness, if you remember, was this first theme, this first set of stories, the coming of Samuel. It was really about disappointments and how we turn to God and shut out the advice of the world to find what God is doing in times of discouragement. Samuel, his introduction, led us into the stories of the ark, which ultimately culminated in the story of repentance, a whole people turning back to God. Now, Saul's going to become another one of these little mini-series over the next few weeks in the book of Samuel. So the question is, what is Saul going to teach us over the next few passages, the chapters we read? Uh, God ends up using Saul's story in a pretty specific way. Saul will be the kind of lesson for Israel, and he ends up being for us as well, of the consequences of their demanding a king. You'll remember it from the chapter before, give us a king like all the other nations. Saul will be the fulfillment of that request, and with it, a little story, a mini-series, an example of exactly the fulfillment of their request. Uh, last week, we described that request for a king as pragmatism. Do you remember that word we used? It was pragmatic, right before them. It seemed like the most obvious thing. It was their attempt to close this gap, this mystery, between what God was doing and all that seemed to be working so well in the world around them. 
Uh, it's interesting this week, uh, the men have the Bible study on Wednesdays that we've been doing, and uh, Trent's been doing a phenomenal job helping lead us in that. And every week he puts together a set of questions. And he mentioned in the set of questions this week how close our devotional we were doing. We have a book that we work through, and every day there's a devotional. And whatever Wednesday's devotional is is what we talk about in our Wednesday devotional. So it wasn't something any of us had scripted out or planned. But we couldn't help but draw the connections between that devotional that day and what we had talked about the previous Sunday. Uh, the opening line of the devotional came like this. We will never get the freedom and long-term satisfaction we thought self-rule would bring. Ignoring God is never a pathway to blessing. Uh, Tripp, the author, goes on to describe all of this self-rule, as the way he puts it, is a demand for autonomy and self-sufficiency have what we want, to think that we can find it ourselves and make it happen. All of us sort of made the connection of Israel's story, demanding a king, thinking that they could have their own autonomy, control themselves, and bring up from their own midst self-sufficiency to be like all the other nations. We were all surprised at the parallels. Saul, what he ends up being, is a kind of case study in the results of this pragmatism, this self-ruling autonomy that Israel, and as we noted in the Bible study, we tend to think is the best way to run our lives. Uh, it's interesting because it shows up all over the place, but it actually shows up first in Saul's name. Saul's name literally means in Hebrew, ask, or something like this is implied by it, the one asked of God, which is a pretty striking name for Saul to have. It's as if the author is saying, God is sort of leading us to Saul saying, you want a king? Well, here's exactly what you ask for, because Saul is going to be pretty much that. Israel, if you want a king, let me give you exactly what you imagined you want as a king, his name is Saul, the one that you've asked for from God. Uh, don't get too discouraged. Uh, God is going to raise up a king later on in the story after his own heart, right, David. But we won't be able to fully understand David and the significance of David if you don't process this character of Saul who lays the foundation for him. David, the one after God's own heart. Saul, the one that the people ask for after their own heart. David, we imagine, ah, uh, wrote the Psalms, the musician, the one that beats Goliath. But the point of this story of Saul is don't fool yourself. Saul is the king that we all want, the, Saul that, the king that we would all imagine, the king that we would expect, the king that when we think about what a king is, we all find ourselves dreaming about and imagining, not David. We learn so much from Saul about our own desires, the way that we perceive our own demands, this pragmatism that we all end up practicing. Saul becoming the full consequences of it. So three things I want to show you in the story. Uh, first, appearances. Second, situations. And third, the one who truly sees. Appearances, situations, and the one who truly sees. So the first thing. The first lesson Israel will learn is the folly of judging by appearances. Judging by what they see. The theme of seeing, this idea of sight, is actually sort of all over the place in this chapter. So it's one of the major themes that runs through it. Uh, it starts off right at the beginning in verse 2. We see with this description of what exactly Saul looked like, his appearance. And the appearance of Saul from the beginning is pretty impressive. We find out that Saul is handsome, a handsome young man. But not just that. Uh, he is probably in his mid-20s, somewhere around him there. But he's the most handsome man in all of Israel. That's quite a description, right? It isn't enough to say he's handsome. We have to point out this is the most handsome man in the entire nation of Israel. The second thing we find out is that he's tall. A full head taller than anyone else in Israel is the way that the phrase is put. Not only is he handsome, but tall. You're sort of seeing it stack up. Tall, dark, handsome, Saul, this perfect king. Uh, for Israel, this is the perfect image of what they would have imagined a great warrior, a great king having been. 
I love the scene when he gets to the well and the women from the city are coming out, right? If any of us men go to a group of women and say, I'm looking for Saul or Samuel, where is he? We probably would have gotten an answer like, oh yeah, he's up there. But you see what Saul gets when he approaches a group of women at the Saul. He is, behold, he's just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come now to the city because the people have sacrificed today on the high place. And as soon as you, they go on and on and on. It's like a whole paragraph. They think, if I just keep talking, maybe he'll stay, right? We can keep looking at him a little bit longer. That seems to be the idea. They go on and on and on because Saul is impressive. The moment he walks, he's one of those characters that when he walks into the room, everyone takes notice of and everybody realizes this is someone unique, handsome tall, dashing. Uh, there's a great article in Slate Magazine I read this week. It has a great title called Shortchanged. I love that title because you'll see it here in a second. But uh, this is what it says in the article that I think is fascinating. Economists have long known that it pays to be tall. Multiple studies have found that an extra inch of height can be worth an extra $1,000 a year or so in wages. If you're six feet tall, you probably earn about $6,000 more than the equally qualified five foot six inch shrimp down the hall from you in another cubicle. Oh, that was a great line. Uh, they say that it actually has an impact on the amount of salaries we have because even us look around at the world and see somebody tall, somebody that presents themselves as in control, and we say that person must obviously be someone of authority. We think about some of the great presidents, Washington, standing at 6'2", the same description, that he held captive every room by his presence when he walked in. Or LBJ, you might remember, was known for being an imposing kind of presence, most of the time because he was angry and mad, standing 6 feet 3 inches tall. Or Lincoln, of course, known for his height at 6 foot 4 inches. And if you read, most people say he recognized, even in his youth, that his height gave him a kind of advantage when it came to relationships and leadership. But there's still more for Saul. Not only is he handsome and tall, we also read that his genealogy is significant. Saul is the son of a man of great wealth, is the way that the ESV translated. It's actually a more common phrase. Uh, in the Hebrew, it means something like, he is the son of a mighty man of power, is the way that the line goes. It's that familiar term you might have heard of military leaders, a man of valor, that sometimes the Old Testament will describe it. It probably meant something like, uh, Saul found himself in an aristocratic family a family that was prominent and significant in the families of Israel. We think of something like the Rockefellers or the Fords or the Kennedys or the Bushes or maybe the Kardashians or the Trumps, something like that. It was a family that everyone knew. There were great expectations for all of the kids. Simply by saying his name, anything else that he decided to do after it would have made sense. He had the resources to do it, the recognition to do it, all of the connections and the political power to make it happen. Not only is he tall and handsome, he also seems to be capable from a capable family. There is one fact that's sort of interesting. We find out that he's from the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest clan. It ends up being what seems like a bit of a strike against him. He's not from one of the influential tribes, but Benjamin, if you remember at the end of the book of Judges, it was the tribe of Benjamin that refused to punish some of the wickedness in their tribe. It kicked off a civil war at the end of the book of Judges. And all of Israel joins together to beat down the people of the Benjamins and reduce the tribe to just a few hundred men. They just become decimated. Well, this is the tribe he finds himself from. So we imagine one of the least influential even mentions it himself. But the commentators point out a kind of political advantage that it came with being associated with this small clan. During the period of Samuel's time, most of Israel has become dominated by two major tribes. There's the tribe of Judah in the south and the tribe of Ephraim up in the north. If either king had come from one of those two tribes, you can be sure it would have been seen as a threat for the other tribe. But Benjamin 
being so small, being unable to do much on its own, such a limited number of men in its tribe, it would have been no threat for a king to have come from the smallest of tribes. The commentators all point out that there's a kind of unassuming political advantage that it gives him, a sort of way of sneaking between some of the big issues of his day coming up from a tribe so unassuming. To be completely fair to Saul, he also seems to be a pretty good guy in the story. When we meet him, he's working, helping in the family business. His father sends him out on a task. He has no problem doing it and spends days searching for these lost donkeys that his father has sent him out to find. He seems respectful enough. He doesn't seem to be gloating at any point in his stature, in his appearance, or in his family name. Maybe it's self-deprecating, but when he meets Samuel, there's even a sense of, how could anything great come to me when I'm from the tribe of Benjamin? A kind of humility. The point seems to be this when we get introduced to the character of Saul. Saul is the perfect image of what a king could be for Israel. He's exactly what Israel must have imagined when they dreamed of a king like all the other nations. He was the ideal that every Israelite could only imagine their sons growing up and becoming an example of everything an Israelite could be in that world around them. It's almost a little bit cliche how perfect Saul ends up being in the story. Everything about him seems to shine and point in the direction of kingship. There's one striking absence, though, in his description. We aren't given a single hint as to his morality or his spirituality. Not a single word about anything deeper than appearance, genealogies. Not a word. He looks so much like a king, we assume, obviously he's going to be a good one, but we know absolutely nothing about the kind of king that he's going to be. His description is even more interesting given all of the other descriptions that we've been reading about characters in the book of Samuel. Hannah, if you go all the way back to the beginning of the book, gets described only by her husband's name, her name, and the fact that she was barren. We know pretty much nothing about what she looked like. That was it. What do we know about Samuel's appearance? We've had chapters of him now. Well, last chapter we found out that his hair was turning gray. That's about it. In the entire book so far, with so much about him, not a single line about his appearance, except for this one, a strike against him, he's apparently at the end of his life. Instead, we get things like this in chapter 3. Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Bathsheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. It's the kind of descriptions we get about other characters in the book of Samuel. Everything we know about Samuel and Hannah has been positioned by their relationship to God. Even Eli, who we imagine we get the description at one point becoming so large it pulls him off his chair, we know that really what's going on is not just a physical description, but a spiritual insight about the kind of priest that he had become, robbing God of his glory and enlarging himself on all of the sacrifices of the temple. Hannah is known by prayer, Samuel by words, Eli and Phinehas and Hophni by their broken worship. But Saul gets presented to us in all completeness by his appearance. Nothing else. But apparently, for most of Israel, that was enough to make him king. Uh, I don't know if anybody's ever read a modern author, Malcolm Gladwell, is pretty well known. He's written some famous books, kind of in the business space, culture space, uh, Tipping Point, or Outliers, or Blink, or some of the familiar ones. He has a chapter in Blink that's called, Why Do We Love Tall Men? And I think he puts it in an interesting way. He says, most of us, in ways that we are not entirely aware of, automatically associate leadership ability with imposing physical stature. We have a sense in our minds of what a leader is supposed to look like, and that stereotype is so powerful that when we meet someone who fits it, we simply become blind to all other considerations. 
I think the most interesting point of that quote is the point that he makes that we turn our minds off and all of a sudden become blind the moment that someone steps into the room and their physical appearance matches all of our expectations and desires about what that person should be. Saul looks so much like a leader that everyone sees him and says, obviously, this must be the next king of Israel. Uh, you might remember from history, while FDR was president, he hid from an entire nation the fact that for most of his presidency, he was confined to a wheelchair. He did it through some, some pretty unbelievable tasks. He limited the amount of photos that were taken of him. He controlled when he arrived at events so nobody would see him come. He actually worked out a mechanism that allowed him to walk small distances. He was desperate to make sure nobody understood he was in a wheelchair because in his mind at that time, what America needed desperately was a strong leader. And the image in his mind made a big difference on how people perceived him. It's the point Malcolm Gladwell's making. For Israel's first king, they needed someone who was from the finest stock, who was everything that everyone had expected a king to be. Uh, there was this interesting little uh, story I read in The New Yorker this week, back in 2013. It's a pretty fascinating little social experiment. Uh, the title of the article was On the Face of It, The Psychology of Electability. Uh, that year, what they, when they polled voters, num the number one issue with voters in 2013 was competence of the person being elected. That was what came out at the top of the polls. So they did a little experiment. Researchers took photos of both opposing Senate candidates from districts that weren't commonly known by the people that they were doing the polls with. And they showed them the two photos without telling them they were politicians or running in Senate races. They showed them the two photos for one second and asked them to pick which of the two people looked, based totally off appearance, as a more competent person. What was interesting was, 73% of the time, they picked the candidate who went on to actually win the Senate race in those districts, three out of four times. The only two factors that proved higher in proving accurately who would win were the incumbency status and the total campaign spending that the candidates did in the race. Uh, at the end of the article, this is what they concluded. There are far-ranging repercussions in judging a person's character based on his face. Looks, they concluded, were heavily overweighted in any judgment and prevented people from interpreting other information properly. I think that's a pretty shocking realization. We look at people, make snap judgments, come to conclusions, draw stereotypes, and most of the time miss so much about what makes a person a person. The more shocking point is... The Bible makes that point thousands of years before the New Yorker comes to its scientifically certifiable conclusion. Uh, we think that it's a breakthrough in scientific study, sociology, but here the Bible seems to be making the exact same point. The people of Israel look at Saul, the snap judgment is made, this is exactly what a king should look like. The character of Saul ends up begging us to realize what we see, what we imagine around us as ideal it actually ends up tending to blind us to the real complexity of knowing ourselves, knowing the people around us, and being able to accurately understand the situations we find ourselves in. Um, if you don't think that it's pervasive, or maybe you think, ah, I don't do something like that, right? Samuel, later on in chapter 16, we'll get to, Samuel actually has to be reminded of the point himself. Even Samuel finds himself drawing these quick conclusions. Uh, we'll see the story later on, but when Samuel goes to find a replacement for Saul, you'll remember he's in front of Jesse and all of Jesse's sons, and he's trying to pick which one will be the king, not knowing about David yet, who's not there. And he finds one of the sons who stands in front of him who looks imposing, who looks like he could be a great king. And God, it says in chapter 16, says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord 
looks on the heart. You might remember that passage. We have a tendency to misunderstand what God is doing because we're prone to give too much credit to what we see on the outside, appearances. We look at a situation, we look at a person, we draw a quick judgment, sometimes not even realizing we're doing it, and come to a conclusion about who a person is, what God is doing, and what's the ideal for us in our life. We make judgments by appearance, our first point. The second one, uh, we want to take a look at situations in the exact same way. After the description of Saul, this glowing example, this hunk of a man, tall, dark, handsome, from a rich, prestigious family, we find the setting of the story. Saul is sent on a task. Go look for donkeys. The theme of seeing, appearances, comes right back up. Here is Saul with his eyes open, out looking, searching, watching, trying to find these lost animals. Saul goes looking for donkeys. We're about to find out that our tendency to judge with our eyes isn't just limited to people and leadership, but it ends up changing how we perceive situations and settings around us as well. Uh, there's a subtle kind of irony going on in this story. Uh, Israel is out looking for a king, was the point of chapter 8. Chapter 9 opens Saul out looking for donkeys. Uh, one of the great commentators I have who's British, and one of the things I've learned in life is, if you have a British accent, you get away with saying things that the rest of us can't say. So I have slightly amended his quote, although I don't think it will be hard for you to put together the pieces that I amended. He says this, Saul is a king looking for lost donkeys. That makes the Israelites lost donkeys looking for a king. You sort of catch the irony of the setting. Everyone is wandering around with their eyes open trying to find what they imagine they're looking for that solves the problem. Find the donkeys, bring them home is a little picture of this setting of Israel, out wandering around looking for a king, thinking that that's what's going on in this landscape and place of being God's people. Saul's wandering around. Incapable of finding these lost donkeys, three days, possibly four, he's now been searching. It ends up making him look kind of trivial, given all of the currents of chapter 8, the political changes that are in the air, this king that's supposed to be coming. We turn the page from chapter 8, all of this talk about kingship, and find Saul wandering around looking for lost animals. It ends up making him look kind of small. Saul looks clueless to this bigger story that he suddenly finds himself in, and it's a little bit surprising. Um, when Saul reaches the city where Samuel is, number one, he doesn't even know about Samuel or the place that he's living, and as he reaches the city, he finds himself talking to Samuel and asking, do you know where this seer is? Apparently having no realization that the person he's talking to is that seer, is Samuel. He seems to not know who Samuel is or not be able to recognize him or not know that he lives in Ramah and does these circuit rides. It's a little bit surprising giving so much of the story of Samuel having drawn all of Israel together and been traveling and judging throughout all of the regions of Israel. He almost misses out Saul on this entire encounter because he's worried that he doesn't have enough money to pay off for this fortune telling of this seer. He ends up looking a little bit clueless about who Samuel is, and for sure petty about all of the things that Samuel is at work doing. There's nothing, nothing hostile in his understanding. It's actually a kind of respectfulness, but he ends up looking kind of ignorant, kind of clueless. It's also surprising that given his family's connections, he seems not to know anything about Israel's desire for a king. He sort of is caught off guard by this talk of kingship coming from Samuel. He seems behind in almost every conversation. He ends up looking a little bit dense to what's going on around him, his whole mind wrapped up in finding these donkeys and getting back home. Uh, if I don't find these donkeys to get home, my dad's going to be worried. But in the real setting, he isn't the one doing the searching at all, but rather the Bible positions him as the one that Israel is searching for. It's small here, maybe even a bit unfair to draw out a big point about who Saul is. 
but we're starting to get a subtle hint about the kind of king that Saul is going to become in the coming pages. Uh, Slate Magazine is not a, a uh, religious magazine, but they run a column that's really interesting. They have one on 1 Samuel I've been reading. They have a column called Blogging Through the Bible. It's interesting to see their take sometimes coming from kind of a pop culture perspective on the Bible. But I actually think they pick up well on some of the subtleties that's going on with Saul here in this story. This is what they write. The Lord tells Samuel that he's chosen candidate is about to visit. It turns out to be the young man Saul, who has lost a donkey and wants Samuel to help him divine its whereabouts. These few details perfectly sum up the character of the future king. Saul is the kind of person who loses the animal he's supposed to watch and then wastes the time of Israel's most powerful man in order to find it. He's at once incompetent, a bit careless, and entitled. But no matter, Saul is the best-looking man in the tribe and the tallest Israelite around, so Samuel anoints him in a private ceremony. I like the phrase, but no matter. It's a good way of sort of summing it up. Any subtleties here about a lack of judgment on Saul's part is quickly overridden. It's no matter given how he appears. At this point, any question seems small. Any hesitation seems a bit paranoid. He must be a good king. Look at him. He's on the fast track to receiving the crown. The final thing, the, the one who actually sees. There's a strange parenthetical. I don't know if you noticed it in your Bible as you're reading through. It's literally in parentheses where we find out this sort of insertion into the middle of the conversation that in those days, a prophet was formally called a seer. Uh, there's a lot more going on there than a kind of footnote about the way that a name has changed. Samuel is the one who sees. The Hebrew word is translated perfectly in English. It literally means the one who can see, a seer. We get it perfectly in English. It's as if he's saying Samuel isn't just a prophet who speaks, but with all of this talk about appearances and sight and people looking and searching and trying to find situations and kings, well, the one who really sees, the one who is the seer, is this Samuel, who they go to to try to see where the lost donkeys are, but we find out has seen much, much more than their donkeys. It's interesting. You notice in the conversation, he sort of dismisses the question about the donkeys before Saul even says anything. Yeah, 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 by the way, your donkeys are at home. They've been there for three days. Everything's fine. Let's get on to what's actually going on in this setting, in this story. But Samuel's not been driven by what he sees, like so much of the people around him. Samuel has received this special revelation we find in the story about this man, this Benjamite, who is coming into this city. It's actually a great phrase. The ESV translated revealed to him. But the phrase is a little more tangible than that. It literally says that um, God uncovered his ear. It's as if he blocked this deafness and lifted his hand from his ear and whispered into his ear everything that was about to happen. Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from Benjamin, anoint him as king. You'll notice again that Samuel is told absolutely nothing about his appearance. He's not told, I'm sending you a handsome, tall man from an influential tribe. Nope, just simply, I'll send a man from Benjamin, you'll know who he is, crown him as king. Samuel sees what no one else can. Not because he's more observant, not because he picks up on details that other people have missed out, but because he's been willing over a long time to hear what God is whispering. His attention, what helps him see so clearly in the story, is not his eyes, but his willingness to listen and hear what God is doing even beyond what he sees. What he hears from God is actually pretty remarkable. God says, I know full well that Saul, who Saul is and what they're asking for. It's not the king that I would have picked, seems to be the thing that God is implying. But in verse 16, he says, I have seen my people and I have heard their cry. God is the one who seems to understand the greatest example, the width, 
the full range of this setting that the story is taking place. This story is not about lost donkeys and a man trying to find them. It's not even a story about a king and Israel trying to appoint it. This is the story about a God who knows his people, who hears them, who understands their hearts and their sins, but also understands the full hope of a future. It's about a God who listens, even when his people complain out of sinfulness, and ends up working all things for good, even when they demand their own autonomy and their own way. As Paul puts it in one point, this is the God who works all things for good for those who are called by his name, even when sometimes the things that they desire are wrong. Even though Israel wants Saul, God isn't going to just abandon them. Saul will be a lesson, a painful one at times to them. But he promises, through this king, I will deliver my people and defeat the Philistines. God will work even in the midst of their wrong desires. Here's the big point I want you to see this morning. If we have any chance of understanding what's going on around us, if we have any chance of really being able to see this bigger setting, this bigger story that Samuel sees above everything else, if we want to see each other for who we truly are, the depth, souls, people in relationship to God, we need eyes that go deeper than just the appearances we see on the outside. Last week, I drove you through a whole lot of philosophical ideas about pragmatism, This week, I want to keep it a little more practical and just suggest to you a possible problem. That what we see when we look at situations and the people around us is not always the full realization of who a person is or what God is doing in this setting. What we see has a tendency to actually distort what is really going on. What we need is to hear from God. We need a word that transforms and changes the way that we see one another and see the world around us. All of this self-sufficiency and autonomy that we described at the beginning, it ends up feeding off of all of these shallow observations, these evaluations we make. What we need is we need God to help us see more deeply, to speak a word into our hearts that all of a sudden begins to change the way that we look at one another and the situations of our life. You might not realize it, but this is one of the big themes that goes on all across Scripture. God is constantly challenging the way that we evaluate things with our eyes, the expectations that we imagine, daydream. He challenges the conclusions that we too quickly draw when we see a situation or see a person. There's a great place this happens in Isaiah 52. Um, In Isaiah 52, I think it actually parallels so well what goes on in 1 Samuel 9. I want to read just three verses from the beginning of it. They'll probably sound like familiar words. Isaiah has this prophecy. Who has believed what he has heard from us? In other words, people aren't listening. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up, this is talking about the Messiah here, the he. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and equated with guilt, grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised. And we esteemed him not. The way that we normally imagine Jesus, this Messiah, if you have any paintings, he's usually pretty chiseled and European looking with perfect hair, no matter what situation he finds himself in. But the way Isaiah describes Jesus is actually a little bit homely. There's nothing in his form, nothing majestic about it, not a single thing that anyone would call beautiful or desire about him because of an appearance. Isaiah says that there will be absolutely nothing about this physical appearance of a Messiah that would make a person say, now that's what I'm expecting in a Messiah. That is a person of authority and significance. 
In other words, unlike some of the great presidents, Jesus would have walked into any room and absolutely nothing about his appearance would have made you recognize him as the Messiah, the Son of God. Here's the thought I want to wrap up with. Saul teaches us to be suspicious. Suspicious about what we too quickly see and judge. How quick we look at one another, how quick we, quickly we look at co-workers or difficult situations, how quickly we look at what Christ is doing, these settings and situations of life, draw our conclusions, come to ideas, think that we know what's going on. The reality is, Saul teaches us, there is always more going on than what we can observe simply with our eyes and what we think is happening. Without God, we have absolutely no hope of actually understanding who one another is or what's happening in the situations around us. It may seem small here in the story of Saul, just tiny little bits of it, seeds of what's eventually going to grow. It's not entirely obvious, this risk. But this subtle lesson is going to grow into greater and greater significance as Saul's rule becomes more and more powerful and more and more problematic. The Israelites, I imagine, will eventually one day look back and say to themselves, what in the world did we see in him? How could we have overlooked all of this? Why did we think that he would be such a great king now that we know so much about the kind of king he is? It forces us to ask similar questions. What is it that we saw in this world? How could we have overlooked so much of what God was actually doing? How could we so quickly have come to conclusions and thought that we understood who that person was, what the situation was? How is it that we draw hundreds of snap judgments every day without ever recognizing that God is the one who truly understands and speaks a word into our life that helps us come to terms with what is actually happening? The reality is Christians should probably be the most discerning people on the entire earth because we are the people beyond anyone else who are willing to think more deeply and be slower to draw decisions about one another in this world. Constantly turning in prayer, our attention to God, to then draw our conclusions about what we see and what is happening. Unfortunately, I think Christians find themselves usually along with the world in the same place. Quick judgments, snap decisions, stereotypes, judging with our eyes and never truly understanding who a person is or what God is doing. This pragmatism that Saul is going to be such a fitting example of, we described it last week as looking on situations and people and coming to the conclusion what must most obviously work. Big criticism of this kind of pragmatism is the shallowness, the short-sightedness of making those decisions in such a pragmatic way. A quick glance, what seems most obviously beneficial, what seems to be working, and getting on with it without ever asking deeper questions about what God is really doing beyond what we see. God warns us, we have to look deeper. We have to challenge the snap judgments. We have to turn an ear towards him and let him speak in the truth of people and situations all around us. I'll end with this. To receive Christ himself seems to be Isaiah's point, is to come to terms with we worship and celebrate and receive the one that the world looks at and calls foolish. The one that the world evaluates and judges and sees absolutely nothing about him that would lead you to say, there is my king. There is the hope of my entire eternity. A man, an insignificant and appearance man, dying naked and humiliated on a cross. But we look on it and say, it's not the foolishness, but the power of salvation, the way in which God is working all things to be renewed and restored and saved. It forces us to say, where else is God calling us to challenge what we see and recognize in it something greater 
a deeper salvation being worked than anyone else just with their eyes will ever possibly be able to comprehend. The Bible suggests that those are the places, despised, rejected, foolish in the world's eyes, those are the places that God tends to be doing his greatest work. We'll see it in the kings to come, but we learn the lesson, first of all, by Saul, who, though he fits every appearance of king, will be one of the most difficult and one of the most challenging kings in Israel's history. Let's close in prayer.